It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back. Great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Monday? I think this thing still works. This microphone in front of my face. I'm back. At least for this week. Scott Rintoul alongside Jamie Dodd, the Shohei Otani of this program. Not producing today. He is getting the start, however, with me. How are you? I haven't talked to you in a long time. Yeah, it's been a while, Scotty. I, I'm glad you still remember how to turn the mic on, how to get connected, and you know all that. How to how to intro the show. You've been, you've had quite the vacation over the last few weeks. Yes, I have. I took the Volvo. Jamie literally got the Volvo on July 26th and started driving it around the province of BC. <laughs> got close to the Alberta border, but did not cross over. I have seen a lot of the wildfires that people have been talking about. I've seen a lot of smoke. All of our hearts go out to everybody in both provinces of BC and Alberta going through this forest fire situation. It is bad right now. We're just hoping we get some good weather for all of all of the people involved in all of those communities, some of which had to be evacuated, a lot of people on evacuation. There are a lot of scared people right now, some of the scenes that have come out on social media. So thinking of you, hoping it goes well weather-wise in the next few days. Boy, do we need a little bit of rain. Calgary Stampeders, in fact, canceling practice today. This was a yeah. common theme with the BC Lions when they were up in Kamloops and forest fires were threatening that area and smoke was pouring in as well. We've seen this a couple times early here in the season, and now it's affecting one of the teams in Alberta. Yeah, and it's um, it's unfortunate, right? On top of everything else going on in, in sports right now where you have to you know make sure you're still following COVID protocols and, and people are getting tested, some of them on a regular basis, depending on their vaccination status, and then just another thing unrelated to sports, really, but that you have to keep your eye on, that you have to monitor, that's kind of affecting your team's plans. And, I mean, Calgary could use some practice time right now. They're <laughs> off to an 0-2 start, not something they're used to in Calgary, and this is just another wrench thrown their way. The province of Alberta, in fact, 0-4 out of the gate. Not many would have seen that coming. Dave Dickinson had won every second game in his coaching tenure prior to the BC Lions handing the Stamps their second loss of the season last week. Edmonton got smacked on the weekend as well. We'll talk some football throughout the course of the show. There is some breaking news on that front. Michael O'Connor looks like he will start on Friday for the Calgary Stampeders. Significant for a couple of reasons. If you watch the Stamps and Lions on Thursday or you caught the highlights, Bo Levi Mitchell had his first four-interception game. He didn't look like himself. Part of that had to do with the injury. He was nursing, and it looks like it's an injury that's going to keep him out this week. So that means a Canadian is going to start a CFL game this Friday. At least that is the report from Farhan Lalji out there right now that Michael O'Connor, the UBC product, this is a guy who does have game action. A couple of years ago when we had a league before the year-long hiatus, <laughs> something that was actually longer than my hiatus from this show for the CFL, Michael O'Connor got reps. Michael O'Connor got into nine games. He hasn't thrown a lot of passes. You see him come in in that backup capacity, short-yarded situation last week against the Lions. But it looks like another Canadian is going to get a start in the Canadian Football League, which is always an exciting story. Yeah, second one so far this year, right, with Nathan Rourke making the surprise start for the Lions in week one. And... You know, Michael O'Connor, of course, coming out of UBC. I know you're close to that program, Scotty. I know there was a lot of hype when O'Connor was at UBC doing his thing and helping them win. And I'm excited to see what he can do in a starting capacity, right? As you said, he does have some reps in the league, not a ton, so there's not a lot to go on. But 
it, it's a bit of a different situation than Rourke because Rourke is is new to the CFL, right? Whereas O'Connor, at least, you know, he has the 2019 season being on the sidelines, learning, observing. He has that under his belt. So you would think, you know, and we'll, and we'll see what the team around him is able to do to help him out. But you would think he's in a decent situation to have some success going into making his first start. Yeah, and not the only Canadian quarterback that's has seen significant action in Calgary over the last few years. Andrew Buckley, prior to retiring, he was the number two in Calgary. He got significant reps, including in a Grey Cup, ultimately a loss for the Calgary Stampeders. I'm sure Stamps fans don't want to relive that against the Ottawa Red Blacks. But there is some investment here. And Andrew Buckley, like Michael O'Connor, came out of a Canadian university. And, Jamie, this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people over the years. And there are a lot of detractors, not only for the CFL, but for Canadian quarterbacks in general. Ah, Canadian quarterbacks, they're not good enough. And if they're going to be good enough, they're going to have to go the route of a Nathan Rourke. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad route at all. Good for him. Went to Ohio and played well in the NCAA. But, Jamie, I have long argued that while it might not be prevalent, you can have a guy come out of a Canadian university and have an impact in pro football because whereas the players who go down to the States get to see a higher level of competition on average, I don't think anybody's going to argue that U sports is stronger competition than the NCAA at its highest level. We're not going to have that argument. Everybody knows where the higher competition level is. But the advantage that a Michael O'Connor has is that He's played Canadian football for the majority of his college career. He knows the game. So while he might have to catch up to the speed once he gets to the pro level and everybody being a little bit faster, he knows the concepts. He doesn't have to adjust to players in motion, an extra player on defense. He knows that stuff. That should be an advantage. I've argued that for a very long time. He's certainly built the way you should be to be a professional quarterback. 6'5". <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a big man. He's got the arm strength. It'll be interesting to see how he does looking to get the Stamps their first win of the season this Friday. Well, and to your point about familiarity with the game, it absolutely should be an asset. You know, the question is always going to be, is that enough to outweigh any other deficiencies that might exist in that development path, right, versus getting to play against, you know, slightly better, in some cases significantly better competition south of the border. But, I mean, the early returns on O'Connor, you know, again, there's not a huge sample size to go. But when he did get in to throw passes in 2019 – you know, the numbers are fine. They're, they didn't look like a world beater necessarily, but it also it also didn't look like he was out of place as a backup quarterback in the CFL. So, and you know this, Scotty, I mean, whatever path a player takes in any sport, you know, it's also about what the team who has him after the fact when they're a pro, how they develop, right? And, and what they do to help them continue to grow their game. So that's a huge element of this as well. And I think to your point about people detracting from Canadian quarterbacks or quarterbacks coming out of Canadian schools, you got to make the investment to help them grow, right? And, and I think this is going to be a really interesting kind of test case to see where Michael O'Connor is at and how much growth is left in his game. For a long time, Jamie, in this league, there were head coaches who said, a Canadian just can't play that position. And it wasn't just quarterback. It was defensive end. And then Brent Johnson came along, and he tore things up for the BC Lions. People went, oh, maybe a Canadian can play defensive end. How about the running back position? Can't have can't have a Canadian there, not as your starting tailback. And then John Cornish came along, and Jerome Messam and Andrew Harris, they all had success as a Canadian running back. Quarterback can be the exact same. We got a text come in saying the Canadian Football League needs a Canadian to be a star at quarterback so badly. I don't agree with that. They don't need it, but it's a great story if it can happen Hopefully Michael O'Connor has some level of success. I think it's a good story. Not that he's going to replace Bo Levi Mitchell for the, the short term anyway, 
But Dave Dickinson, now with Rick Campbell in BC, Jamie, it doesn't matter where you come from. It matters whether you can play, and they feel these are their best options. They're not keeping these guys in the positions they're in simply because they're Canadian. No, and, and as I said, you know, it's not like he's looked – unlike a CFL quality backup when he's got his chance to throw passes, right? Like he obviously has enough acumen to be in the league. It's just a question, is that as a backup going forward or is it as a starter potentially? And if it is a starter, you know, what's the level there? What's the ceiling, right? Because not all starters are created equal. And to the Texter's point, you know, they make a good point about the league needing a, a Canadian quarterback. And right, need might be too strong a word, but boy, it wouldn't hurt, right? It would be for this return to play season. And, and there's still so much uncertainty hanging over the league as we look beyond this season. But to have that storyline, that would make headlines, you know, not just in Calgary, but would make headlines around the league. That would be a, be a tremendous boon for the CFL. That text came in from Doran, Doran in Cumberland. You can text us all day, 650-650-960-960. We will check both inbox and we will work your comments into the show if we can. This one comes in. Agree that O'Connor is in a very good situation with Dickinson as his head coach, Bo Levi being one of the best quarterbacks in the last decade as his mentor, John Huffnagel still there to keep it all in check. It would appear to be a good situation despite the Stampeders start and an offense that really needs to get going. It's interesting because in the Canadian Football League, and I want to combine the National Football League and CFL for this and, and see where our listeners are at in this next part of the discussion, Scott Rintoul alongside Jamie Dodd here today on Rintoul and Sermon. We're watching the first week of preseason action in the National Football League. We didn't get any preseason in the CFL this year, Jamie, and offenses are behind defenses right now overall. The average score through the first two weeks in the Canadian Football League is 23-13. to 13. It hasn't been high-flying football. It has. It's had some drama in some cases, but that hasn't meant it's because... All of the football is good football. 15-9, that was the score between the Lions and the Stampeders. Lions don't care how they get their wins. They'll just take their wins. Ottawa would say the same thing. Ottawa set a record in week one. 94 yards of net offense, which is the lowest total in CFL history for a win. And they found a way to beat the Edmonton Elks in week one. The NFL is going through its preseason right now. Now, I took a look last year at the NFL first couple of weeks the NFL not having preseason games last year, it didn't affect scoring very much. In fact, there were some lofty scores, but the NFL had a much longer training camp than the CFL has had this time around. I want to get to the NFL store. I want to get to some Canadian impact over the weekend as well. But, Jamie, do we have a newfound respect for preseason games? Or if you're watching the CFL right now and you're watching some of these kinks get worked out in games that matter, are you more on board with that because of the unpredictable nature of it? Well, I, I do think what we're seeing is you probably should have a preseason game or two, right? And they're not particularly entertaining. They're not all that exciting. But I would rather see when the games count at least a higher level of offensive play than what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Now, I will say the counter to that, and you make the comparison to the NFL, the other difference, obviously, is that the NFL hadn't had a year layoff going into that season, right? So, yeah, they had no preseason games. They just had a training camp. But they also weren't coming off an entire year away with a ton of roster turnover mixed in there, right? And I think that is probably at least part of the cause in the CFL here is just there's a lot of rust accumulated on these guys. A lot of new guys 
playing together for the first time, haven't taken snaps together until they're out there in week one. So I think it's partly the preseason. And yeah, maybe we should all have a little bit more extra respect for preseason football now. And it's partly the massive, massive layoff that all of these guys had to go through. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. We've seen so much roster turnover, changing of faces, a bunch of players retiring, some opting out, that a lot of it has to do with chemistry, Jamie. I agree with that 100%. Some of the NFL teams that we watched last year and came out and ripped it up offensively in the first couple of weeks, they had lots of time together previous to that. Maybe yeah. they didn't have OTAs, but you still saw quarterbacks finding ways to work with receivers, depending on what protocols in certain states, or Tom Brady infamously with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and going to the wrong townhouse. But that's a different story. Well worked out for Tom Brady and the Bucks in the end. I agree with that, and yet I'm, I'm still in the place I was before. I have been a proponent of two preseason games, and that's it. I don't need yep. four weeks of NFL preseason. I don't think they need four weeks of NFL preseason. But I would like to see a little, especially when you're trying to get players like, I don't know, Michael O'Connor a few more reps in case they have to start. Nathan Rourke, some game action in case he has to play. I would like to see some preseason. I just don't want as much as we are currently being served up in the National Football League. Yeah, I think NFL preseason is a whole different beast because it just seems like it takes forever. And the funny thing with the NFL is, you know, when I was like growing up and just getting into watching football, I feel like everyone kind of turned up their nose at NFL preseason. Like, ah, it's exhibition. Who cares? Why even watch that? Now it seems like the NFL just has such a Midas touch with anything it puts out there that I see people, you know, on my social timeline and, and people texting in who are really excited to watch NFL preseason, which kind of blows my mind based on where it was a few decades ago. But I, I don't need to see this extended four weeks of, of NFL exhibition. I, I just don't. I agree with you two weeks. But at the same time, I'm hard-pressed to see the NFL shorten it because it's another way that they can get eyeballs on their product. It's another way they can make money. They can drive interest. Again, it's just it's incredible the degree to which no matter what the NFL puts out, if it has that NFL logo on it, people will get excited about it. People will talk about it. People will watch. So, yeah, I don't need to see it. i also not sure it's going to change anytime soon. From a Canadian standpoint, preseason was pretty good to Canadians over the course of this weekend. We all know Chase Claypool is the standard right now for skill players among Canadians in the National Football League. And he didn't do much in the Steelers' second game of the preseason. He was their leading receiver in their first, and that's kind of what we expect. Big weeks for Chase Claypool after watching an incredible rookie season for him last year with the Steelers. But one of the nice things to see was the opportunities some of the Canadians were afforded. And, Jamie, this is becoming more of a regular thing. When I was growing up, when you were growing up, you were hard-pressed to find a Canadian who yeah. was not a lineman or a kicker or perhaps a long snapper on a I CFL say a long snapper, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. hey, <laughs> Ladusur is still doing it down in Dallas. He's been going forever, and good for him. Go get that bank and keep your NFL career going. But now we're starting to see this be commonplace. Chuba Hubbard had a really nice outing yesterday. Had a 59-yard run, ended up with seven carries for 80 yards. He was great at Oklahoma State, didn't have a great season leading into the draft. We know he's behind Christian McCaffrey in Carolina, but he got a chance, and he made the most of his chance yesterday. He actually scored on a two-point conversion. They got called back because of a hold as well, but he flashed yesterday, and this is becoming more commonplace. Josh Palmer coming out of Tennessee, drafted by the Chargers. Josh Palmer, he led the Chargers in receiving against the Rams, and that was without 
Herbert quarterbacking that team. Ryson John, here's another good story. This, this is a young man who's come out of a Canadian school, SFU, despite playing against NCAA competition. He's had to make the move to tight end, Jamie. He had three catches for the New York Giants, totaling 14 yards. This is becoming more commonplace week after week, year after year. Yeah, it is, and Chase Claypool really set the standard for it last year, right, with his breakout season for the Steelers where he was exceptional. I mean, he wasn't just, you know, it wasn't, oh, he's doing well for a Canadian. He was having a major impact just by by the standard of NFL wide receivers. He was doing really well. That's kind of the standard, and that's kind of where I think we're at now, right? So for me, when I see these performances by Canadians in preseason, I like it. I'm excited about it. But I also know we're kind of moving beyond the, oh, hey, I'm happy this guy's on a roster stage, right? And I, I am happy for those players. Of course, it's a huge deal just to make an NFL roster, especially as a Canadian. I get that. I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay their accomplishments. But we've also seen what a product like Chase Claypool can do. And I'm not expecting all of these guys to live up to that standard. But it does leave me, I think, with a little bit of a higher standard when it comes to evaluating these Canadian NFL players, right? Like, I want to see them get major opportunities. I don't want to see them buried down the depth chart. And I'm, I'm hopeful that what they're doing in the preseason will translate at some point to at least seeing snaps and getting opportunities in the regular season. If I'm not mistaken, there were 24 Canadians on NFL rosters heading into camps this year. Now, I'm not sure all 24 will stick. Likely, there will be some who are cast aside. But 24 is a pretty large number, and some of them are going to be on your fantasy football teams. Minor Matt texts in this morning, there's excitement for NFL preseason. Personally, I'd rather watch someone that's watching paint dry. That is from Minor Matt. But this is why there's excitement for preseason, Jamie. Yep, it's nice to keep an eye on the Canadian talent, and that's certainly I've always got something I've got an eye on for. But if you're a fantasy football player, this is why NFL preseason actually matters to you because you're looking for players who might be a little bit off the radar. And this isn't all about my fantasy football team or your fantasy football team, Jamie. But I'm in some leagues. You're in some leagues. You know how this works. Guys are yep. checking the scores. They're checking the box scores. Oh, this might be a hidden gem I'm going to get. And... When revenue is concerned, fantasy football is a massive animal, so that's why it matters right now. Oh, man, and just the amount of detail that you can get right now on, you know, snap counts in preseason games and target share, target percentage, and, okay, yeah, this guy got a lot of targets, but it was it was in the second half with the second stringers. Who, who got targets when, you know, the starting quarterback was in there to start the game? Because that's what really matters. You can get as granular and detailed as you want, and you're right – it is pretty much 100% driven by fantasy and daily fantasy to a certain extent as well, right? Because as you say, guys trying to find those hidden late round gems that they can snag in their draft based on some preseason action. Now, you know, sometimes that works out. Sometimes it goes horribly, horribly wrong when you get a little too invested in preseason stats. But yes, that, as with so many things in the NFL now, right? The drivers are fantasy and sports betting. And it's the same thing here with the preseason. This one comes in, honorable mention, for some Canadiana in the NFL was Chris Strebler trucking a Dallas safety. Last Strebler, the backup in Arizona, won the Grey Cup with Winnipeg, and he was more the running quarterback where Zach Caleros was slinging it at the end of that season when the Bombers last won the Grey Cup. They're the reigning Grey Cup champs right now. Yep. But Strebler led the Cardinals in both passing and rushing over the weekend. We saw him get into a little bit of game action at the end of last year. Unfortunately for Strebler, it didn't work out too well with Arizona needing to win that final game to get into the postseason. He wasn't able to guide them to that against the Rams. But, yeah, that's always that, hey, we've got your back as well. If you played in the Canadian Football League, yep. it didn't matter what team you played for. If you go to the NFL, most 
fans of the of the CFL will back you, and now they're all on your team like they are for Chris Strevler. And Strevler's an easy guy to root for, I find, as well. Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's just something fun about a quarterback who can truck people. Like, that. that's always enjoyable, right? So that style of play, and then he's got a big personality to go with it. So, yeah, honorary Canadian, I think, Chris Strevler. It's fun when he gets some game action. This is a good question that comes in from Marcus and Gibsons. Would you rather see a star Canadian quarterback in the CFL? We had somebody comment on that earlier. Or, says Marcus and Gibsons, a starter in the NFL. Well, you got to be somebody of relevance, so it's really difficult to compare the two. If you're just a starter, if you're a, a jag, as they are called, just a guy, well, yeah. that doesn't excite people too much. If you are somebody who, hey, you know what? I might actually put in my fantasy lineup this week. Or you are now the the uncontested starter with an NFL team. Well, yeah, that's going to carry more weight than a star Canadian quarterback in the CFL. Both are great. Why can't we have both? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point as well. You're right. There's a certain level. I mean, it would just be exciting, you know, to see a Canadian quarterback start in the NFL for a season, right? And even if there was, you know, if, if they were Teddy Bridgewater or something, right, who's kind of the mercenary starter, veteran starter for hire. Now, Teddy Bridgewater had to work a lot to get to that stage, so it's, it's hard to compare, right, to a guy who might be coming directly out of college or something. But I think there would be a lot of excitement for that just because of the novelty factor. And you're right. I mean, if you if you fall farther down the depth chart than that, maybe the excitement wears off. But initially, it would be really cool to see a Canadian quarterback in the NFL, I think. As far as North American sports, that's kind of the last frontier, isn't it? We have yep. seen Canadians yep. win MVPs in basketball, in baseball. We know what Canadians are doing in in football, as I just mentioned, right? obviously hockey has long been a, a Canadian sport with a lot of it, Canadian dominance individually. But the NFL skill positions, guys that you might actually dress in your fantasy football team, I know that's not real football, Jamie, but that's what hits home with a lot of people. That's where the recognition comes. And it's, I guess quarterback is going to be the final frontier because we're seeing these Canadians come into skill positions right now. Well, and even you look at kind of more globally, right, in an individual sports, you know, we have – Tennis stars who are ascended yep. now, golf stars who are who are climbing up the rankings. Obviously, you know, Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David in Europe, right? Soccer stars. So you're right. It really is. And it's especially notable because south of the border, it is the number one dog and nothing else is anything is even close, right? So, yeah, we've, we've had so much success in team sports, in individual sports, global, in North America. That is the kind of last box to tick, right, is having a big, legitimate star in the NFL. We will continue this conversation throughout the course of the show. You're always welcome to jump in on it, 650-650 or 960-960. It's something we want to touch on with our next guest as well. He joins us every single Monday. Donovan Bennett of Sportsnet will be along right after this. And I had a bit of an unfortunate run-in with nature this weekend. That story still to come this morning on Rintoul and Sermon, co-hosted by Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Oh, yeah. You know, this one was on in the Volvo a few times. Jamie, do you know how many kilometers I put on in less than three weeks? I can only imagine. Almost 5,000. I'm not kidding you. Not bad. Not bad. That's a lot of driving. Up to BC's interior, over to the southeastern portion of the province as well, all the way back then, most yep. of the way back again. I stopped a lot of places. Got a good new initiative coming up on social. 
with Volvo that we're going to be doing, and you're going to have a chance to win some prizes. I will let you know as we get the details worked out, but it's going to be fun. It's going to have to do with travel. It's going to have to do with my Volvo XC90 as well. And, yes, that song was pumping. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd, Donovan Bennett, set to join us here momentarily. We were talking a lot of football. We'll talk some more with Donovan Bennett. Jamie, how many of the CFL games did you catch this weekend? Did you catch any? Just catch up on highlights. Where were you at with that? I was kind of popping in and out of a bunch of them. So, you know, none none that I sat down and watched from start to finish, from whistle to whistle, but bits and pieces of, of most of them. As we mentioned off the top of the show, tough week for the province of Alberta on the football field. It's been a tough two weeks. 0-4 between the Stamps and the Elks out of the gate. And the Elks got thumped this weekend. Like the BC-Calgary game, it was much closer. It was down to the wire. Alouettes... Had control of the game against the Elks yep. in the beginning, and they just rolled on both sides of the football. Now, whether or not you caught that game, I hope most of you saw the clip that came with it because there was an atrocity in the stands. Something I have never seen before. I don't want to see again, but it's brought up a huge discussion, at least socially. It's about sharing food. I'm not talking about a fight being the atrocity in the stands, Jamie. I'm talking about <laughs> three Montreal Alouettes fans sharing the same hot dog. These three guys were sitting there together, two side by side, one a, a seat apart. Dude number one takes a couple bites of the hot dog, hands it to the guy on his left, takes a bite of the hot dog from the same end, by the way. He didn't say, oh, well, if you're sharing your hot dog, I'm going to go to the far end where you haven't eaten from yet, then passes it back to the dude in the middle, who subsequently passes it to the dude to his right. He also takes a bite of that same hot dog, Jamie. Yeah. That is such a food foul, man. It's um, it's uh, it's like it's a foul, but it's also just bizarre. It, it, it's not it's not something I'd ever contemplated seeing before, right? That we had to make a rule against it because I just assumed it would never happen. I mean, my biggest question is, I, I know stadium food can get pricey, but like, what are we charging for a hot dog there? It, it cannot be that much that three guys feel the need to split one hot dog. Like, you could easily all have your own hot dogs. I don't know. As I don't know. There's there's got to be more to this story there because that one does not make sense. We're not talking about a pack of Twizzlers where you're passing it back and you take a couple of liquor strands of your own. We're not talking about a big bucket of popcorn where you're like, hey, I'll get the big bucket and you reach your hands in. I know some people out there might not like that, especially in these COVID times, but that is at least somewhat socially acceptable, yes. Jamie. Oh, absolutely. Sharing the same hot dog? Like, you might do that with your kid. You might not even go there then. But no. that's maybe... A uh, husband-wife, you might get away with it. You're not doing that with your buddies. No, and it's never even occurred to me, as I said, right? Like, I've never had a hot dog, a burger, a sandwich, and, and been like, hey, do you want a bite? It, it's just, that's, that's not how it works. That's just not how those foods work at all. Oh, I was dismayed. Dismayed <laughs> when I saw that. Like, I wonder about the fate of humanity when I'm seeing this. Those guys got a lot of national recognition, but not the type of national recognition they were looking for donovan bennett of sportsnet set to join us i've never asked him this question i know donovan's not down with the behavior he saw from those three fans no. wearing no. alouettes jerseys on the weekend donovan thank you very much for doing this how are you i'm great listen we're gonna have a real election coming up where we debate all types of things vaccine passports covid protocol mask wearing how many fans should be in stands what is the point of all of this concern about COVID if we're just like, yeah, you know, not only don't wear a mask, share a hot dog. I mean, you shouldn't share a hot dog 
in general, I understand the prices at Percival Molson have gone up over the years to get a sausage or a hot dog, but not so much so that you need to make an economical decision, which is the only way I could justify this, and share the hot dog between you and not one, two of your closest friends. It's one thing you're in a relationship with someone, you're going to share more than a hot dog. Fine, go ahead. Do what you got to do. You love the hot dog so much. You, compliments to the chef. It's so great. You need someone else to understand that the relish, the mustard, the ketchup is outstanding. Fine. Understood. But sharing a hot dog with two people, that, that's just savage is what that is. It's a sad state of affairs. So I'm not sure which politician is going to be asked first their stance on hot dog sharing in the year 2021. But I'm telling you right now, I would ban it. I would outlaw it from the country. It is a shameful, shameful show of display. Yeah, any candidate answers with, yeah, that's okay. That's socially acceptable. And you're out. Oh. Like, done. Pro- you're gone. Approval rating you're- down. Yeah. yeah. Not getting it. I better not only hear an economical argument from those people, which, again, is a bad one. I better hear an inebriated argument. Man, I <laughs> don't even remember it. That's That's how messed up I was at that game. That's what I need to hear. To not make it acceptable, but to give me a plausible explanation for what I saw. Well, I mean, they say that you inebriated is just like a further showing of who you truly are, good, bad, or indifferent. So even if that was the argument, maybe a little bit more plausible, like I could could see it, but I still don't think that's a great assessment as to you as a person. Speaking of assessment, Donovan Bennett of Sportsnet joining us as he does every Monday on Rental and Sermon, co-hosted by Jamie Dodd today. What's been your assessment of the first two weeks of the CFL season, one that has a shortened schedule, as we know, and did not feature a preseason this year? I thought the football was better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be super sloppy, lots of offside, fumbles all over the place. It's been relatively clean. Offenses have been ahead or behind, sorry, uh, of defenses. And we understand that, the timing that, that it takes to, to build chemistry and camaraderie on the offensive side is something that, you know, you don't see early in seasons, even when there is a preseason. But my biggest takeaway is the fact that some quarterbacks who are being paid a lot of money have been giving away the, the football. And so health and QB play is really what you're looking for out of your CFL team. And uh, Trevor Harris is on massive money. One TD so far, three INTs. Mike Riley on big money. It's been a question whether or not he was going to start both games. And so we got to watch his health because he's coming into a season with a two-year layoff and still not healthy. Uh, he only has one TD pass. Because Levi Mitchell, one TD five INTs, and he's someone who wasn't able to get through camp healthy. There's questions in terms of Nick Arbuckle and his readiness to play in Toronto. So it's crazy to say this. The QB without the health questions is Zach Kalaris, who's always had health questions, and he's been super hot with four TDs and one INT. So who is going to be available at the QB position, specifically the high-paid players? players at that position and then really who's going to be able to navigate the season keeping their starter healthy throughout because it has been a two and sometimes three if you look at the Winnipeg Blue Bombers 2019 QB league where you really need a great quarterback room to carry you through a season it's an abbreviated season only 14 games so 
you know, Calgary starting 0-2, Edmonton starting 0-2. Those are two of the highest-paid QBs, two, two teams who expected to be in the conversation for the Grey Cup, so not a great start in the province of Alberta for sure. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that 0-2 for both uh, Albertan CFL teams off the bat. And I know for Calgary in particular, you know, they are not used to that. That is not the standard that has been set by the Stampeders. In your opinion, should Edmonton or Calgary be more concerned about the 0-2 start? Edmonton, and here's why. Although it is a bit of a photo finish. There's real reasons for concern in both places. But in Calgary... There's institutional knowledge on how to win. You've got a quarterback who's won. You've got a head coach who's won. You've got a GM who's won. Right? So there's a real belief that if we stick to our process, we'll be able to win. Now, the question is, for the first time in a long time, they've got a really young roster, and they've got new players all over the field. And So how long does it take to get bought into that Stampeder system and that culture without a training camp and without a season last year? Remember, this is a franchise who often – would let big name, big money free agents go because they felt like internally they could replace those players. Well, you've had that happen for two off seasons in a row without a season, without a training camp to really groom and develop those young players who are going to step into the fold and make up for those losses. So I think over time, Calgary, given you know that they know how to win, will be able to right the ship. Edmonton is the exact opposite. You've got a new coaching staff, really the second coaching staff, in the pandemic that they've had, you've got a first-time head coach. And so there's understanding between Ellingson and Jimmy Elizondo and Trevor Harris in terms of having good offensive football. But you, they've never been in this situation together. So who emerges in that locker room as the leaders? Talent-wise, they are among, if not the most talented roster. Their, their receiving core is an all-star team. But they've never had to come out of a hole and have to struggle. And so does that locker room stay intact? Do they stay connected? They continue to buy in to Trevor Harris as their leader. Do they continue to buy into Jamie Elizondo and his staff and what they're preaching? Because, again, it's going to get late early in this season. You've got tough schedules coming out of the gate. And if you're spotting you know, three, four games in a very difficult West Division, that might be too late in terms of championship aspirations. So I think Calgary is in a better spot, but... Edmonton does have the better roster. I just worry if, if things go south, it's going to be ugly. Well, the other story with Calgary breaking today, of course, is that Bo Levi Mitchell is going to miss some time. That means Michael O'Connor, the Canadian, is going to get the start at quarterback in their next game against Montreal. We've already seen one Canadian quarterback start so far this, this year in the CFL in Nathan Rourke. And I, I don't want to put either of this on, on the shoulders of O'Connor or Rourke because they're still young. They're still developing. But for a league like the CFL that, you know, is constantly trying to kind of break through in the sports conversation in this country, what do you think it would mean if a, a Canadian came in and not just started a quarterback, but became a star caliber quarterback in this league? Oh, it would, I don't think you can understate how big it would be, especially, you know, in the middle of the country, the prairies, where if you're just a Canadian influential player, you're a star. Andy Fantuz had his own breakfast cereal. He was such a star. Brady Oliveira has started two games, and he's a star in Winnipeg. So if you had a star at the quarterback position, talk about brand partnerships, talk about engagement, talk about conversation, uh, it, it would be massive. And I do think that 
both O'Connor and Rourke have the ability to do that, to, to be a starter, to be one of the nine guys leading a team and eventually to be a star. O- O'Connor has been a leader at every level, including, uh, you know, he, he was in a close battle in the NCAA to be you know, the starter of a massive program. So I, I think given that he's had some time to learn the pro game, the CFL game, I think he's in a great spot. I, similar to Rourke, I didn't think the opportunity was going to come this early because part of the reason why he went to Calgary is because he had the opportunity to learn behind uh, Bo Levi Mitchell. Part of the reason why I loved the fit in BC for Nathan Rourke is because he'd be able to learn behind uh, Michael Riley. And so now these guys are both thrown into the fire uh, quickly. But this is what Calgary does. They haven't had a lot of time with O'Connor to groom him, but they really loved him in the draft process. But whether it was Henry Burris, Jeff Garcia, Drew Tate, Bo Levi Mitchell, Nick Arbuckle, on and on and on, in Calgary, backups, when they got their opportunity, they excelled. And they either went on to have great success there or basically went elsewhere and provided the rest of the league with great quarterback play. And I'm hopeful that Michael O'Connor is the next one in that long line. Donovan Bennett joins us every single Monday on Rental and Sermon. He does so today with Jamie Dodd co-hosting in place of a vacationing Karen Sermon. As we're still on the Canadian train here, let's switch our focus to south of the border. Some notable Canadian performances. Yes, it's only preseason, but this is becoming more commonplace. And in our opening segment of the show today, Donovan, look, I'm a football guy. You're a football guy. Jamie loves football too. But those who dismiss the relevance of fantasy football in today's day and age, I'm sorry, you're out of touch. And to see Canadians on fantasy football rosters actually means something. Chase Claypool burst on in a big way this past year. Now you see Chuba Hubbard. Yeah, he's the backup in Carolina, but he flashed over the weekend. Josh Palmer with the Chargers. You had Rice and John even making three catches for the New York Giants. What does it mean to have skill position players be fantasy relevant in the National Football League? Well, I think that's the biggest difference in the wave of Canadians that we've seen burst onto the scene in the NFL. We've had Canadians for a long time in the NFL that have done well. They've traditionally been interior linemen, a lot of long snappers, a good amount of kickers. Every once in a while, there'll be a dominant DN that came out of the University of Manitoba. But now what we're seeing is skilled position players that are not just sticking around on special teams, they're making an impact and they're making an impact right away. You mentioned fantasy. Chase Claypool was the last pick in my draft uh, a year ago. I picked him. He helped me win the league uh, because of it. And I think, you know, someone like Josh Palmer will, could have this similar impact uh, this year. I, I think Chuba Hubbard is going to be someone that people love to handcuff to, you know, their first overall pick in Christian McCaffrey because. McCaffrey's injury history, but also because there's real talk that you might see both of them on the field at the same time. So certainly what you're seeing is Canadians at the skill position, uh, you know, making plays, you know, Nikhil Harry with the New England Patriots is expected to see more targets this year. And that's not even talking about some of the, you know, the big guys on defense that you'll see making splash plays in terms of getting to the quarterback next and Neville Gallimore and Christian Covington. So I, I do think it's a big deal for Canadians and, and quite frankly, for savvy fantasy football players that we're starting to see 
the Canadians play those positions a little bit closer to the water cooler, out on an island, wide receiver, slot back, in the secondary certainly as well, and, and in the backfield in the case of Chuba Hubbard. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing that we are now producing skill position players, and we're not just producing O-linemen and D-linemen. That was part of the NFL preseason slate for me over the weekend. That was one of the storylines. I loved seeing those guys show up in the box score. The other that most people are focusing on is the number of rookie quarterbacks who had varying levels of success. We know about the big five guys who went in the first round of the NFL this year. Who flashed the most for you among rookie pivots who got a chance to play this weekend? Oh, that's a great question. Flashed the most. I want to say Trey Lance. I mean, I expected Trevor Lawrence to be good. And and it really doesn't matter whether he's good, bad, or different. He's going to play. So the Jaguars have basically put the next three, five, ten, twelve years of their franchise on his shoulders. What happens when you get picked first overall? There's a real chance of whether or not Trey Lance plays makes an impact what that ceiling looks like in terms of what the Niners are in the short term and the long term and there was real questions about that pick him going in that spot so the fact that he flashed that he looked good really it changes how I view the NFC West how I view the Niners and what their ceiling is remember last year before they were riddled with injuries and then they complemented that with bad quarterback play we saw the Niners as a team potentially could come out of a very difficult NFC to go to the Super Bowl. Now, are you removed from that? People are obviously down on them. But if they get some quarterback play, and, and my memory goes back to when they flipped the switch and Colin Kaepernick, because of injury, started the Niners, and everything else was just put into the place and they make a run to the Super Bowl. Lance could have a similar impact. This is early. I thought he was going to be someone who followed the Patrick Mahomes program sat for a year, killed it in practice, rumors of how good he is, but they're really holding him back, making sure that he learns the game because the physical tools are next level. Next year, he's a fantasy superstar, potential MVP. That's what I thought I was going to see out of Trey Lance, potentially. That was the ceiling. Well, he's showing that he could compete at a high level right now. So it changes, quite frankly, and I hope no one else in, in my league is listening, it changes where I have him on my draft board in terms of fantasy. It has me thinking differently about the Niners in terms of where I should be betting in terms of over-under, and it quite frankly changes how I view all of the other moves that happen in a very competitive NFC West with the Rams changing their quarterback uh, situation and Seattle trying to get you know Russell Wilson some help in Arizona, continuing to be a player in free agency. I'm looking at the Niners and I'm thinking worst in the NFC West they might be first if Trey Lance is giving them good quarterback play so yeah he's the one that I really circled and underlined and spent a lot of time thinking about so Donovan one of the other things we see in preseason not just in the NFL but every league is they they try to introduce the new rules that they want to emphasize this year and one of those for the NFL this season is taunting and so far in the preseason I've seen a few examples where You know, a guy makes a big play, gets pretty hyped up about it, and for some reason the officials throw a flag 
for taunting. Are you as confused as to why the NFL is doing this as I am? It seems to make no sense. You're, you're punishing enthusiasm and taking a lot of, of the joy and the expression out of the game by doing it. Yeah, so I'm going to go into the NFL League offices in New York, Madison Avenue, with a decked out PowerPoint. Lots of decks, lots of slides. One of those ones that you got to email everyone who looked at it afterwards so that they can go through it again. But it's going to be very simple. I'm going to say, Roger Goodell, listen to me. Help me help you. Here's your impressions on social media. Here's your business impact. Here's how many people came through turnstiles and paid hard money for tickets. How many of those are going to be increased because there's no taunting? I'll, I'll give you the information. You don't even have to go back to the end of this document. The answer is zero. Who are you doing this for? Like, is there a long list of DBs who feel really upset because the first down signal was done in their face? Like, is this something that we need to get a hold on? Is there an epidemic of kids like bullying other kids because they saw NFL players getting up excited about scoring a touchdown? Like, I don't think this is the case. This is a rule just so that you have a rule. We saw this in the NBA where. They really wanted to crack down on the amount that players were screaming at and berating officials. So they just started giving technicals for everything, which was natural emotion when a call went against someone and someone reacted. No one's going to be cool, calm, and collected and just run down the other way when they're really invested and care about the outcome. And similarly, I don't really understand what they're trying to prove here. DBs get excited when they make a play. Defenders get up and do a sack dance. Obviously, receivers love to celebrate in the end zone. You've come so far in relaxing the no-fun league mantra that you held for so long that you followed the CFL's lead, and the touchdown celebrations have been a great resolution and something that people really looked forward to, and in the era of memes and social media something that was good for your brand so why are you taking three steps backwards when you just took a huge step forward i don't get it and i think because nobody really cares to see less celebrations i think it's something that's going to be rolled back over time because there is no business case as to why you want to have such a hard line on taunting when the things that we're seeing isn't taunting it's called fun Will this feature of you in Roger Goodell's office be made available on the Sportsnet website? Is it just a Donovan Bennett YouTube channel thing that we're going to be able to see? No, it is uh, an exclusive for <laughs> Rentoul and Sermon. It's just going to be audio, and it's going to come directly to you guys first. Good stuff, man. Thanks for not taunting us either. We didn't want to have to flag you today. Always appreciate the conversation. Hope you and your family are well. We'll do this in a week's time. Appreciate it. Take care. That is Donovan Bennett joining us. The flag, Jamie, that came yesterday in the Colts-Panthers game, Benny LeMay. So he's a running back for the Colts. Yeah. He carried about five dudes for about, I don't know, eight, ten yards down the field. And he got up from the run, and he was excited. And all he did, he didn't spike a football in anyone's face. He didn't grab his crotch and gesture at the guy who ultimately took him down. He stood up, and he kind of flexed a couple of times, and he yeah. said something. 15 yards. It was an insane penalty, and if you can't smell the difference between that and actually doing something that qualifies for taunting, I'm not sure you should be throwing flags. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. And, you know, you look at that play in particular, and I guess the argument would be, okay, he's flexing in the defender's face. 
I mean, first of all, who cares? But second of all, you know, a football field after a running play like that, it's a crowded place. So if you celebrate, there's a good chance there's going to be an opposing player in your vicinity, right? Like, is is celebrating near an opposing player, is that taunting all of a sudden? Do we really want these guys, especially guys who are fighting for their NFL lives, fighting for a spot on the roster in these preseason games, do we really want them to just shut off any emotion after they make a big play? Like, come on. The game is played by people. They get excited. They get passionate about it. We shouldn't be penalizing that. Yeah, if you're demeaning another human being in a very obvious manner, okay. Now we can go down the taunting road. I'd rather, you know what I'd rather see get flagged, Jamie? I'd rather see the touchdown that gets scored by a team that's down 35 points in the tail end of the fourth quarter and the and the player who celebrates that way over the top <laughs> yeah. despite losing by, you know, five touchdowns at that point. I'd rather see that guy get flagged. What are you doing? There's a time and a place. Yeah, absolutely. That is more. That is that is something we should t- try to take out of the game more than you know a guy being fired up that he gets a big first down for his team. The nutty professor is helping do this show today. I will explain what I mean next. Amy Trask on the way in the next hour as well. It's Rental and Sermon, co-hosted by Jamie Don. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. That's not an '80s track. That's something a lot newer. We've come a long way, actually. From the 80s, but those big, uplifting, crowd-pleasing tracks that you hear a lot of sporting events, they never get old. You're going to find songs like this one and more on the Headliners playlist on Apple Music, plus more fist pumpers, rock anthems as well. Listen to the Headliners playlist on Apple Music. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. Hour 2 underway. Amy Trask, former CEO of the Raiders. She's a CBS Sports as well. She will join us. At the bottom of this hour, a little bit of business getting done around the NHL over the last couple of days, Jamie. Saw a couple of contracts handed out this morning. Got a goalie getting in on what has been not a typical goalie deal, but it's a second-tier goalie deal, and it's a good tier to be in right now. UC Soros gets a contract this morning. They avoided arbitration with UC Soros in Nashville. Took over for Becca Rene last year. He's obviously retiring. Four years, $20 million. That matches the AAV of Thatcher Demko in Vancouver and Linus Allmark as well. Demko, the one of those goalies that got an extra year on his deal. Allmark and Soros get four-year packs. It's a, hey, we think you're the future. You're just not in that upper tier quite yet. Yeah, it's actually been, I feel like it's been a pretty good offseason, and even you could extend it back to when Demko got his contract. It's been a decent period of getting deals for goalies, I think. I mean, you look at the Linus Allmark one, I think that surprised a few people. You know, I think Thatcher Demko and Soros, both right where people expect them to be, but goalies don't always get even contracts of that magnitude, right? Sometimes it can be hard to find. Philip Grubauer got a nice long-term deal from Seattle, so good to see some of the goalies cashing in out there. Shesterkin as well, and some people question that. Well, has he played enough? And there are a lot of people who think he has the biggest upside of any of the goalies we just mentioned. But that's where this is coming in right now. So Nashville gets that deal done. If you had to bet on one of those four goalies over the over the span of the next four years, Demko's got the extra year on his deal. But let's use four years because that's what Soros got. That's what Olmark got. That's what Shesterkin got as well. Which of those four goalies would you say that's going to look really, really good in the next few years? Man, that is so tough because predicting goalies may be the most difficult thing to do in NHL evaluation, right? It is so, so hard to predict what they'll do. 
from year to year. I mean, I'll say this. I think I would have Allmark at the bottom of the rankings. I might have Shesterkin at the top, and I know there was a lot of skepticism uh, about that deal given his his relative lack of track record in the NHL. But don't forget, he also played pro in the KHL for a long time and had an excellent track record there. I believe it was last week or possibly the week before when we had Mike McKenna, our Tuesday regular on. He was very, very high on Shesterkin, so I take a lot, I put a lot of weight on that. But even if I have Shesterkin at the top, you know, Saros and Demko, not far behind. Both, I think, a lot of upside in both of those players. Yeah, that's probably how I'd rank it as well. The interesting thing with Allmark is he, he's going to Boston, so his environment's going to be exponentially yep. better than it was in Buffalo, and that's part of this conversation as well. You can be really good. Are you playing in the right environment for your skill set is are, are you going to have to outperform your environment Demko had to do that a lot of times last year Canucks making a lot of moves this offseason to ensure at least in their minds that it isn't the same case part of that is Jason Dickinson we talk a lot about the blue line and and what it means to a goaltender but it's a team game and that's why Jason Dickinson got three years 2.65 on the AAV over the course of the weekend. It gives us some more clarity on where Pedersen and Hughes are probably going to come in at, but with Dickinson specifically, that's the reason that they went and traded for him, to help the environment, to help the blue line. We we often segment it when we talk about hockey teams. In yep. the three, hey, there's goaltender, there's defense, there's forward groups as well, but if the forward groups don't work properly with the defensive unit you've got out there, it doesn't really matter, and that's part of Jason Dickinson's value. At least they believe it will be in Vancouver. Well, and it's it's two things, right? It's one, you know, your the ability of your forwards to help out defensively and play without the puck, and Jason Dickinson should certainly excel at that. He has in Dallas and be better than the options the Canucks had in that spot before it. But I look at the forward group as a whole, and, you know, this is a case where I think the Canucks might be flipping the old cliche around, and, you know, their best defense might be a good offense, right? Might be just the ability of the forward group to hold on to the puck, to spend time in the other team's zone in a way that certainly the bottom six and even the top six at times haven't been able to do recently. You look at Jason Dickinson, also Connor Garland, who is an excellent puck possession player, you know, another year for Niels Hoaglander, Vasily Podkolzin, I know they have high hopes for. So that might be the best way for the Canucks to actually cut down the scoring chances against is just play in the other team's zone. Use this talented group of forwards now to tilt the ice the other way and relieve some of that pressure on your blue line. This one coming in from John in Vancouver. Haven't seen enough of all of them, the four goalies we just mentioned, but Demko's performance in the bubble is above anything the others have done, so I will take Demko, says John in Vancouver. It's it's debatable. I mean, that was such a small sample size. If you're going to take the three or four best games from any goaltender, you can put together a pretty, pretty nice highlight tape. Demko was exceptional, but it was such a unique set of circumstances. He had similar stretches last season for the Canucks prior to the COVID outbreak. I understand the the reasoning there. I think most people in the goalie world, including our operator today, Greg Ballack, have Shesterkin ahead of him, but I understand the argument there for Thatcher Demko. Yeah, there's certainly an argument to be made. And again, you know, I think whenever you're talking about goalies, it's really hard to say 100%, you know, these guys, they're close, but this guy is better. It's really hard to do that because there's so much volatility. I mean, Demko certainly has the upside to be the best of that group. There's no doubt about that. But the other guys have upside too, right? And and there's always a chance that they perform just that much better. Saros got Vesna votes last year. He was a massive yep. reason that Nashville worked its way into a playoff position and came back from what looked like 
the brink of elimination in the first half of that truncated schedule. I mentioned the Jason Dickinson deal gets done, so that gives us a better idea of where Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson are going to have to come in financially. The Canucks have... $13 million or so in cap space if you look at it right now, but with Michael Furland going on LTIR, it's more like $16 million. They'll probably not push themselves right up against the end of that, but it gives you a pretty good idea. It's going to add up to, I don't know, $15 million probably when those two contracts eventually get done. Yeah, that's a pretty good ballpark figure, and it is funny because now, okay, we have all of the other business that the Canucks needed to take care of is done, and that's the number we're left, it, left with, but... I mean, if you've been listening to Canucks reporters, Canucks insiders in the market, that's probably what they would have told you a couple months ago too, right? Is <laughs> somewhere around $15 million for the two of them. And I do feel like the Canucks have kind of worked backwards this offseason, right? They they probably have in pencil, okay, $15 million for Pedersen and Hughes. What can we do within that constraint? And so far, I mean, that that's, what, that's the number they've arrived at, right? The Jason Dickinson deal is the final piece of that puzzle. But it certainly seems like, you know, whether we do have to wait a few more weeks or not for those deals to get done, yeah, it's going to be a combined $15 million, give or take a little bit. Yeah, likely that's where it's coming in at. You see the deal that goes down in Minnesota today as well. Kevin Fiala and the Minnesota Wild, they avoid arbitration, but he takes just a one-year deal. So he did a little bit different than, say, Jake, Jason yeah. Dickinson, who could have gone to arbitration. And most players file for it, but they don't end up getting there. Dickinson takes what some thought was a little more term at that number than maybe he would have wanted. He took a three-year deal, and some thought, ah, maybe you do two and you play well and you cash in on the other side. Kevin Fiala went the other way. Nope, I'll do the one-year deal with you here. You're going to owe me more after this. Minnesota's got about $13 million, I believe, to play with, and they've got to get Kirill Kaprizov signed still. Well, and that's the really interesting situation in Minnesota, right, is the Kaprizov thing. And you, I'm sure you saw, even when you were on vacation, Scotty, you know, the, him him coming out or saying that basically, look, I have a deal worth a lot of money in Russia, in the KHL, if that's the route I want to go. So Minnesota, you got to step up and play ball. I mean, I'm of the mind that ultimately that's a bluff, right? That's just a negotiating ploy. But it is always an inter interesting situation with Russian players because they do have that league where a lot of them can cash in if they so choose. So I'm going to be fascinated to see how those negotiations play out. Yeah, I agree with you. It likely is a leverage play, but we've seen players do it before, and it was yep. for far, far less money in the case of a guy like I don't know, Mark Giordano back in the day with the Calgary Flames. Well, pay me what I'm worth or I'm going to go. Well, Mark Giordano went overseas, went and played in the KHL, and then he came back, and things worked out pretty well. Certainly with a Russian player who's already been in that league, it feels like there's always that flight risk. I'm with you. I think it eventually gets done with the Minnesota Wild. The question is, what number? And this is a player who can't be offersheeted either. I think most teams, given where they are in the cap anyway, it feels like yeah. that ship has sailed. People wondered if Elias Pettersson might get offered. She did. They, they'll get something done with Kaprizov. To me, it's what kind of term do they actually get him yes. under as opposed to the dollar value? Well, that's the fascinating part, right? Because does he, you know, most players, if you can make the money worth it, they'll jump at a long-term offer, right? Like, yeah, cash in, bank that money. But we're starting to see that shift a little bit. And with Kaprizov in particular, I do I do think there's an open question about how long does he want to stay in Minnesota or is he going to try to engineer this for the quickest exit to, you know, either whether it's the KHL down the road down the road or another NHL market. So that's just another interesting wrinkle with those negotiations that are going to make them really fascinating. Speaking of interesting wrinkles, people were talking over the course of the weekend. We'll give you some of their comments here. Let's get to what they're saying. Lots of drama with the Green Bay Packers over the course of the offseason, spearheaded by Aaron Rodgers. I'm not coming back. Trade me. 
but he eventually came back. Here's what Aaron Rodgers had to say about his relationship with the Packers and where it currently stands. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, relationships aren't formed uh, in a matter of a couple of days. You know, there's there's time where the respect grows and the, and the communication follows. You know, I think the, the greatest relationships that you have, you know, with your friends and loved ones involve conversations that flow. You know, you can not talk to a close friend for a few months and pick up right where you left off. You know, there's no break in, in communication. There's no um, forced conversations or you got to hit this person up because it's on your to-do list that day. You know, it's all about wanting to have those those conversations and, and wanting to, uh, you know, to be in conversation like that. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, we've had a couple conversations and been positive conversations. Wouldn't you love to know what's been said behind closed doors? Has Packers management gone to Aaron Rodgers and said, we will trade you, but it's just not happening now. We'll get you where you need to go. Understand that there are some bridges that have been burned that you are not ready to reconstruct, but you're going to have to play for us this season. Yeah, and I am fascinated by this whole situation, right? I, I, I don't know if I can really remember an exact parallel in the NFL where a star of Rogers magnitude is so obviously has one foot out the door going in to the season. It's something I'm actually really excited to chat with Amy Trask about when we talked to her in about 20 minutes here, because, you know, she has that experience at a high level in an NFL organization. I mean, how do the Packers approach this season? How do they keep Rogers happy without, you know, compromising their integrity and what they want to do down the road. It's it's a really one of the most unique, interesting situations in the NFL, I think, this year. Yeah, it's weird because Rodgers obviously has some personal feelings that aren't going to change with regards to Packers management. He loves the fans. He loves the city. He loves his teammates. And I guarantee you there's a part of him, just the way he's wired, Jamie, there's a part of him that is going to go out there and try to have the ultimate success and doesn't want that success to come for upper management yeah that's the fascinating part and and by all accounts he even likes the coaching staff right yeah. he gets along well with Matt LaFleur respects him a lot it's really just at the general manager level and that it's I mean how much should that affect your play throughout the season right it's not as if you have to be sitting in meetings going over film with the general manager all week right like you sh you think you should be able to compartmentalize it a little bit but Rodgers is a bit different right and we don't know if he's going to be able to do that not a quarterback regarded in quite the same way to a tug of down in Miami wasn't great on the weekend and there are a lot of questions about what he is going to be for the Dolphins coming in as the starter in year number two, took over for Ryan Fitzpatrick partway through last season. Here's the head coach, Brian Flores, talking about the preseason mistakes, which included a goal line interception on the weekend. Uh, I thought he made um, several good throws. He had, uh, I know he had the drop with Shaheen early. Um, I want to say he had another drop, but he fired the ball in there on a couple in cuts, made some good decisions. Obviously, the one bad decision in the red zone. Um, and we talked about it, I and mean, he knows exactly. Um, what he should have done with the ball there, and you know, correctable. That's what you know, we talked about as a staff. Something that's very correctable, and um, you know, he'll make the correction, and we'll move on and get better from it. The Dolphins have a very good roster construct, and if yep. they can get capable quarterback play, this should be a playoff team, Jamie. Especially with the expanded playoff field that we saw introduced last season. Where are you at with Tua right now? 
Man, it is really tough to say. I I still have some optimism, but you know, eventually you got to put it up and you got to show on the field and especially now, you know, they should have a very talented not just the rest of the roster, but specifically the the other skill positions that he's going to be given to work with. His weapons should actually be pretty good. So, there's not going to be a lot of room for excuses for Tua this year, right? If if his performance is not up to at least a competent level, a level high enough to keep the Dolphins in the playoff chase, you know, we see it every year now, Scotty. Young quarterbacks are able to come into the NFL and have immediate success, right? So the leash on a guy like Tua, even a top five pick like Tua, it's a lot shorter than I think it used to be. And, you know, I, I don't want to say, oh, this is the, the first few weeks are going to be defining for his career or anything like that. But under, expectations are understandably very, very high. And, yeah, I still think he has the talent to meet those expectations or at least come close. But the clock is ticking. There's no doubt about that. Well, you know, with young quarterbacks, and we saw this with Russell Wilson very early in his career, and I'm not suggesting Tua is going to end up becoming Russell Wilson, but sometimes you put the handcuffs on. And many times last season, when he was working his way into that starter's role, Jamie, the field got really compact. Hey, let's get the ball out of your hands early. We don't need you to try to stretch the field, make more high-risk throws. But you're not going to ultimately be able to make the level jump necessary in the NFL unless you can stretch the field. They went out and got Will Fuller, who brings speed. They drafted Jalen Waddell, who brings speed. There's an expectation that they're going to take some shots this year that perhaps they weren't comfortable taking last season. Yeah, and and the other – the Russell Wilson example is interesting too, though, because, yeah, they had the handcuffs on, but you also felt pretty much right away, okay, this is an NFL starting quarterback, right? That Russell Wilson gave you that sense very, very early in his career. I mean, by winning the job in camp as a third-round pick, right? He did that. Tua hasn't done that yet. There's still just that question, can this guy play at the NFL? And then we can start talking about, okay, how do we design the offense to best suit his strengths? Can we take some of the handcuffs off? But he hasn't even given you that level of confidence yet, I don't think. Justin Field gave Bears fans, Justin Fields, I should say, gave Bears fans a lot of confidence on the weekend. I asked Donovan Bennett last hour, hey, which rookie quarterback flashed the most for you? There are a lot of people who would answer Justin Fields. He looked very good, had some early stumbles and then looked good at 142 yards and a couple of touchdown passes. When he got outside the pocket, he was making things happen. Matt Nagy named Andy, hey, he's our starter. Andy Dalton's our guy. Here's what Nagy had to say after the game and Fields' impressive performance. You know, it's expected. you got to play the situation and just understand, okay, this is uh, – the the excitement is there. And we all – I'll go back to we all want him to play really well. Like that's a that's a good thing is, is for him to go out and play well. Uh, at the same point in time, we knew going into this that um, in this situation that – Anytime there's there's something that goes wrong for a guy like Andy in this situation, you know that that's going to be there if Justin's playing well. Um, but no, this is something that we've we've planned for, prepared for, and we we want to make sure. And and again, Justin understands all of this, and I, that's what I love about him is he understands the plan. He he understands the process. They all do, and he we we asked him to go out and play well on game day live, and he did. There's so much pressure now, Jamie. There is so much pressure to play first-round quarterbacks. Find out early. It works for some. It doesn't work for others. When we get to October, is Andy Dalton even starting games for the Chicago Bears? I would be surprised, honestly. And, you know, this is partly about the upside and the excitement that Justin Fields has around him and and partly about 
Andy Dalton's limitations at a quarter, as a quarterback, especially at this stage of his career. That's the interesting thing when you compare this situation to the one happening in San Francisco, right? We've heard, I and mean, we had Dieter Kurtenbach on the show a couple weeks ago, and he said, look, it's not as if Jimmy Garoppolo is playing poorly at camp. It's just Trey Lance has been extremely, extremely exciting. And that's why you maybe wonder if, you know, they in, in San Francisco they wait a little bit longer is because they do have Jimmy G, who – Regardless of what you think about his upside, I think his base level of talent and production is significantly higher than Andy Dalton's at this point. But with Andy Dalton as the incumbent, I mean, you really have to think it's only a matter of time before Justin Fields takes over there. You got to win early if you're going to go with the veteran over the rookie. It gives you some time, breathing room. Okay, let's see if we can get everybody up to speed here. Lance is interesting in San Francisco because... They're designing a different part of the offense for him. He was 5 of 14 through an 80-yard touchdown pass on the weekend as well, but he did have four drops. Sometimes that yep. box score can be a little bit misleading. you got to watch some of the game. you got to watch an extended cut if you're going to get a true feel for some of these guys. Oh, no doubt about it, right? And, I mean, the coaching staff is, are not making decisions based on, you know, 5 of 14 versus 8 of 14, right? They're doing exactly what you said. They're looking at each rep and, and determining how it went. Jimmy G, the problem has been health. On the subject of health, Roger Federer's has not been good over the last couple of years, and Roger Federer needs another surgery. Let's hear from what many people consider the greatest tennis player of all time himself. Unfortunately, they told me for the medium to long term uh, to feel better, I will need to will need surgery. So I decided to do it. I'll be on crutches for, for many weeks and then also uh, out of the game for many months. So it's going to be... Difficult, of course, in some ways, but at the same time, uh, I know it's the right thing to do because I want to be healthy. I want to be running around later as well again. And I want to give myself um, a glimmer of hope also to return to the tour in some shape or form. Um, I am realistic. Don't get me wrong. I know how difficult it is at this age right now to, to do another surgery and, um, and try it. But uh, look, um, I want to be healthy and uh, I'll go through the rehab process, I think, also with the goal. Um, while I'm still active, which I think is going to help me during this uh, this long period of time. Even the most committed Roger Federer fans can admit he's probably not going to win another Grand Slam event. Yeah. But most people in the tennis world probably would like to see Roger Federer to get healthy enough to at least have a farewell tour. And I think he will. Now, he described it in that clip as a glimmer of hope, which does not sound particularly optimistic, obviously. And he was very upfront there saying, look, I know what a challenge it is. But I also know he's probably so committed to that goal, right, that he's going to do everything in his power. And he's a phenomenal athlete who's taken such good care of himself. I do think we will see him return in some form, if just for you know a brief kind of farewell tour, as you say. I, I think he has too much pride not to pursue that. And again, yeah, it's tough at his age coming off of surgery. I understand that, but I do think he'll be able to accomplish it in some way. Does he get to have that one run, even if it doesn't result in a grand slam? That Jimmy Connors run at an extended age where expectations are out the window and you appreciate the, the player for his career. But does he get to have that one emotional connection where people are going, you know what, maybe it could happen. Yeah. I hope so. I really do. Whether he's your favorite or not, he has been so good for this sport. Oh, undoubtedly. I'm rooting for it as well. And I'm not, you know, a massive Roger Federer fanboy or anything like that. I have a ton of respect for him, but I'm not one of the people who are, you know, among his biggest fans. But it would be phenomenal to see. It would be really, really cool. 
You know what will be cool? Speaking with Amy Trask, the princess of darkness. She joins the show often. She'll do so again today. We'll talk some NFL preseason. We'll talk about the NFL protocols right now and how much pressure is being exacted on players to get vaccinated. That's coming up next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Better late than never. CFL over the course of the weekend, news coming out that they're changing protocols for those who are vaccinated. You're going to have fewer restrictions if you are a fully vaccinated player at least two weeks after your second shot than those who have not been vaccinated or have only had one shot. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. The NFL has been doing this for quite some time, Jamie. When that came out last month, we talked about it extensively on this show. You want to talk about pressure points? The CFL hasn't gone to the biggest one that the NFL has used yet, but they're using pressure points. Hey, you're going to have a more comfortable life if you're willing to get vaccinated than those who will not. And the NFL ultimately said, oh, by the way, guys might not get paid if we have to cancel games. <laughs> because of a COVID outbreak among unvaccinated players. So that's going to be on you if guys don't get their checks. CFL hasn't gone there yet. The NFL set the precedent there, and there's a lot of people who agree with it. And it's kind of the uh, the carrot and the stick approach, right, where you've got some punishments, like the NFL has, has instituted, as you said, a quite harsh potential punishment of losing a game check. But then you give some incentives as well, right? It's not just the threat of something bad happening. It's also, hey, if you do this, your life is actually going to be a lot easier in a lot of different ways. So I'm not surprised at all to see the CFL follow suit. I think that's something we'll see across different sports leagues. I know we started to hear some rumblings about what the NHL's COVID protocols might look for next year. And it does sound like if you're one of the players who chooses not to get vaccinated, life is going to be a lot more difficult for you in the NHL next year. Ron Rivera, pretty vocal in a piece, Monday morning quarterback that's up on SI.com right now. He spoke to Albert Breer. Some of those quotes, you're talking about a guy who is immune compromised because he battled cancer and has obviously been through a lot in his life. Ron Rivera, he came out swinging on this issue, and, and he's been open, Jamie, about being frustrated about yep. many players on his roster when they first got together for training camp not being vaccinated and the numbers in Washington, which have gone up now. There are much more vaccinated players than there were before. But he had this to say, and he, he held up his phone, and he was talking about the information that's out there. He said, Gen Z's relying on this, and you've got some, quite frankly, bleeping bleep holes. <laughs> Putting a bunch of misinformation out there, leading people to die, that's frustrating to me, and these people are allowed to have a platform. And then one specific news agency, Rivera, went on to say, every time they have someone on, it's, I'm not a doctor, but the vaccines don't work. Or, I'm not an epidemiologist, but vaccines are going to give you a third nipple and make you sterile. Come on, that to me, that should not be allowed, according to Rivera. Yeah, Rivera has been really strong on this issue. And because of just, I think, the way he's regarded around the NFL and then obviously his personal situation, as you said, having fought cancer, it's he's kind of the voice in, in some ways of, of what the NFL wants to say on this. But maybe they the league itself doesn't feel comfortable. But Rivera has the cachet, has the authority, has the kind of the integrity to stand up and say it. And it's, look, I, I was already a big Ron Rivera fan. I, th I find him a very, very easy guy to root for, and this is certainly helping. This one comes in. What about the inevitable outbreak with fully vaccinated players? It won't go down the same road if that's what happens. If, if you have a team of vaccinated players, 
and it's confined to vaccinated players, if that's the source of an outbreak on a team, Jamie, the NFL or any other business that is trying to mandate this, they will say, look, we knew this could happen, but you've done everything in your power to protect yourself. You followed all the protocol. The virus made its way in here, but you've done everything to protect yourself, so we're not going to hold that against you. And the risk is so much lower to vaccinated, fully vaccinated people, right? So, yeah, you you could you can still have those breakthrough cases, but the potential of it turning into something, you know, potentially life-threatening or something that sends you to the hospital, something that leaves you with lasting symptoms, that risk is so much lesser, right? So it is easier for the NHL, the NFL, whatever league we're talking about, to be more lenient in that case because the dangers are so much lower. It's a polarizing topic in the general population, and certainly when it gets to sports. Man, Minnesota's been really high profile with what Kirk Cousins has said over the last couple of weeks with them getting rid of their offensive coordinator, pardon me, O-line coach last month as well. That's one of the teams that's been at the forefront of it. Amy Trask, always at the forefront of football conversation, former CEO of the Raiders, now with CBS Sports and frequently joins our show. We're We're pleased to have her today. Amy, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I am well. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Do you have a favorite favorite Looney Tune character? I saw the kicks you were sporting this weekend with Looney Tunes characters all over them. Do you have a favorite among them? You know, I I, I feel like that might be like picking from among your favorite kids or your favorite dogs or cats. I don't know that I should pick a favorite. <laughs> but, you know, Bugs Bunny's up there. Roadrunner's up there. There's a lot of good ones. Well, we could make some roadrunner comparisons to players in the NFL, but I'll save that for a different show. <laughs> the conversation we were coming in with, and I'm sure you heard part of it, was about where vaccination rates are at in the National Football League. Leadership needs to step up, whether it's among the players, coaching staff, higher up in the organization. What would your approach be if you were working for a franchise and trying to get your players to at least understand the issue at hand? Well, let me back up one step and say that I think that the National Football League has done a tremendous job of providing incentives for players to be vaccinated. They cannot mandate it without agreement from the NFL Players Association, but they've worked closely with the Players Association to get buy-in, if you will, on the incentives. So, you know, just by way of example, if you're a vaccinated player, you can hang out in the training room or the weight room or the lunch room, the breakfast room, the meal room, you can have more um, flexibility and freedom when you're on the road. If you're not vaccinated, you can't do any of those things. So the league, I believe, has done a terrific job of providing incentives. I would do as much as I could to provide the players with as much information as available, to have an open forum where there are scientists, doctors, experts who not only present information, but answer questions and not only in a group setting, but are available to players to pick up the phone and call and say, give me some information, help me understand this. I'm trying to learn more information is always welcome. I'm with you. And I am of the firm belief you can't tell anybody what they have to put in your body. However, with everything in life, You make choices, and there are certain consequences that come with the choices. The NFL has put some pretty harsh ones in place this year, for me, to the betterment of their league, but not everybody agrees with that, Amy. Well, you know, there's a a saying, and I may may 
not get this precisely, you know, but the, the concept is with freedom comes accountability, with freedom comes responsibility, with freedom comes consequences. So when people say, look, you know, I have freedom, I, I'm free to do this, I'm free to do that. Sure, but your freedom will yield consequences. And, you know, there's a, a saying I learned when I took constitutional law in law school, which is um, you do have the freedom to swing your arm. But that freedom ends when your arm hits me. In other words, go ahead and swing your arm. You're free to do that, but you are not free to touch me with your arm. And that's another concept that's applicable here and, and I think explained very well in that regard. So the league is providing tremendous incentives. Again, without the union's concurrence, the league can't simply say we're going to mandate something. And the, the incentives in place are, are strong. Amy, one of the the um, facets of this that I find really fascinating is, you know, we're so used to analyzing coaches based on, you know, the game the game script they develop and the X's and O's and, and general managers based on how they draft and how they use their free agency budget. But we forget sometimes that a, a huge amount of, of what those people in those positions are asked to do is be leaders behind the scenes. And I feel like we're really getting a strong sense of how valuable it is to have strong leader as your coach. And I'm thinking specifically of Ron Rivera, who's come out and been very outspoken. And do you get a sense of that too, that, you know, the, the teams that do have really, really strong leaders in those positions are at a bit of an advantage here? Well, yes, yes, yes. And not only in this instance, and let me just take a moment to say, you know, I think the world of Ron, I have for many, many years, of course, I've got to give a shout out because we share a university. We're both grads of Cal Berkeley. So, you know, I've loved him since he was a golden bear and, and he's just, that was kind of a, a little cheap way for me to get in a shout out for my California golden bears. Wasn't it? Um, I, I do think the world of Ron and he of course is in a very unique situation, just having been treated for cancer last season. He is in a very, very delicate compromise situation and he has been very direct about that. And as to your point about coaches being leaders and doing far more than the public is aware, that is something I saw for almost 30 years in the league. The amount of things that coaches are doing behind closed doors, even when there's not a pandemic and even when there are not issues like this, is just tremendous. Um, you know, you're, you're drafting players that in, in some cases we drafted young men who weren't even 21. They're moving in some instances all the way across the country, having never lived far from home before. There's all sorts of life issues going with that. You know, I remember drafting a young man from across the country from a very, very small town who was in tears when he got to us. He didn't want to move 3,000 miles from home. I remember we drafted a young man who was terrified to drive on a California freeway. And the reason I note these things is Coaches are dealing with matters like that all the time. These are life issues, not simply X's and O's issues. And the compassionate, strong leaders really do a magnificent job. Amy, another one of the situations, focusing more just on the on-the-field aspect of football here, but I'm fascinated by in the NFL, is what's going on in Green Bay, right? With all of the drama that unfolded with Aaron Rodgers throughout the offseason, now he's there, he's in camp, he's going to be their starter but we also have the sense that the relationship is going to be done after this season. What does that organization need to do from the top down to make this kind of strange, awkward situation to make the season as smooth as possible, despite all of that? 
Well, you know, you just pitched it slow and easy across the middle of the plate. I'm going baseball on you now because you just <laughs> mentioned another Cal Golden Bear. So we've got Ron Rivera. We've got Aaron Rodgers. This is Berkeley Day on your show. And shame on me if I don't give my Ber- my fellow Berkeley uh, people a shout out. Uh, look, I, I think that um, the most recent comments from Aaron were very wise. Um, he said, let's just play this season and I'm not going to worry about what's next. I'm going to focus on playing this season. And I think that's a tremendous perspective. Look, we all saw what and heard or learned what went on in the off season last year and then dated back to last season. The, the organization, in my view, needs to be far more communicative and collaborative with Aaron. And I'm going to go back to the drafting of a quarterback Look at the difference between the way Kansas City handled it with Alex Smith and Green Bay handled it with Aaron Rodgers. When Kansas City had Alex on the roster and was going to draft Patrick Mahomes, they picked up the phone and they called Alex and they took him into their confidence and said, look, you can't tell anyone about this because we don't want to give away our draft strategy, but we're planning on taking Patrick Mahomes and we didn't want you blindsided by that. Alex appreciated it. And when they won the Super Bowl, the first person Patrick thanked for his guidance and leadership and mentoring was Alex. And you know how Aaron learned that they drafted a quarterback? He saw it on TV with the rest of us. So if, you know, I was telling Green Bay what they should be doing this season, treat Aaron like the part of your organization he is, the position he's earned. Uh, Don't treat him just like, you know, a chess piece, if you will. Um, Have a good season and worry about what happens next after the season. The rest of the questions will only involve Jared Goff, Deshaun Jackson, and Jeff Tedford for the rest of the wow. show. Wow. As we just I, run we're down We're going to be some... besties today. <laughs> Amy Trask, CBS Sports, former CEO of the Raiders, joining us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now, Aaron Rodgers was insulated the same way Patrick Mahomes was, but he was insulated for longer under Brett Favre. But, Amy, you and I both know, and as we watch the highlights pour in from preseason games over the weekend, a lot of the talk was about the rookie pivots, whether it was Fields or Lance or Lawrence. There is so much pressure now to play first-round quarterbacks in a functional organization what should that conversation look like as to when you make that move the answer to that is two words it depends it depends on a lot of things and look i'm not looking to punt if you will pun intended but there's so many factors that go into that analysis look i remember saying last season on air on cbs sports network You better watch it with Joe Burrow. You better watch it with Joe Burrow. This guy is getting hit and hit and hit and hit. And you don't want to just look at drafting Joe as to what he's going to do in his first year when you can't protect him. This is the man you drafted to be your quarterback for a long time. And sure enough, within a few weeks of me saying that, boom, he goes down for the season. And the reason I reference that is one of the factors I'm considering before putting in a rookie quarterback is, can I protect him? Do I have the appropriate people around him? It's more than just the quarterback. But you are absolutely right. There is far more pressure nowadays to get young quarterbacks playing quickly than there was before the current CBA was put in place many years ago. You used to have longer, a greater amount of time to sit someone on the bench. You don't have as much time now under the current terms or under the terms of the current agreement. But before you put in a rookie quarterback, you better know you can protect him. You better know he can protect himself. And you better know all those factors before making that decision. 
Well, and as the fans call for Justin Fields or Trey Lance or whichever quarterback you want to name who is not the starter but is projected to be the future starter, really the only thing you can do to insulate yourself is win games early, isn't it? I'm not sure I understand what your reference is to the fans unless you're saying the organization might feel pressure to listen to the fans. Yeah, and that's um, where I'm going with this because everybody's – hey, this is the future and we're not winning games right now. Let's see the future right now. But if you win games early the way that Kansas City did with Alex Smith or if Jimmy Garoppolo gets off to a great start with the San Francisco 49ers, it's a lot easier to slow play your, your next move. Oh, of course it is. And especially – look, if you're in a situation – where you really do have a shot at winning your division and you're winning games well, you're winning your games and you're staying in your division race. If you're in a division where you look at it realistically and you think, unless all heck breaks loose, I don't really see us going for the division. Maybe you're going to look at this differently. Um, You know, there's a saying in football that winning cures things. I've never viewed winning as a cure. Winning is a great deodorant in a lot of instances. You may not be curing an underlying problem, but you sure are making it attractive and pretty while you work on the cure. I bollocks up that analogy. I usually do it a little more seamlessly, but I think you know what I mean. I love that. Winning is a great deodorant. I may use that, but I will credit you each and every time. Amy Trask yeah, joining yeah, us yeah. here. I'm claiming the intellectual property rights on that, friend. That's good, and we've got a record of it now, so I'm not going to be selling anything <laughs> based on that. When it comes to preseason as well, and the Rams have been at the forefront of this, there are different philosophies as to how much starters should play in the preseason. The Rams, they basically say our guys aren't playing. Where are you at in that risk versus reps debate? Again, it's an in, it's an it depends, and I will put two hats on right now. When you're in the business operations of a team, if you're selling tickets, if you're selling suites, if you're marketing sponsorships, If you're dealing with fan interaction, community relations, customer service, you've got the issue that you're charging fans for the preseason, yet they're not coming to see the players that are the projected starters. Some people respond and say, right, but that's part of the preseason experience. They get to watch the team, the growth, the kids, the guys they won't see during the regular season. You're going to have other fans that say, then don't charge us what you're charging if you're not going to play the players that are the top players. So there's the business aspect to not playing your starters. But at the end of the day, the organization is going to do, needs to do, and I think ultimately fans want them to do whatever is best calculated to win during the season. So, you know, you don't want a starter going down in the preseason and being lost for the year. Uh, But you also do have to be sensitive to your fans. One more note. When you don't play rookies in the preseason, and I experienced this while I was in the league, sometimes not playing them to protect them, they're not as smooth and silky as they could be as if they'd gotten some snaps in the preseason. Amy, we were asking about you know the process of a, a young or a rookie quarterback taking over for a veteran, but I kind of want to look at the the flip side of the situation, which is when you have a young, very promising quarterback who's maybe not developing as quickly as you would like. And, and I'm thinking specifically here of Tua in Miami. And, and I don't want to you know say that he's not going to reach his extremely high potential. I know he's still very early in his career, but what does that process look like for an organization? When you've invested a very high draft pick in a quarterback, how long does it take before, again, at the organizational level, you kind of start to think about, okay, what's our contingency plan if this doesn't pan out as we were hoping it did? Well, you're, you're right as to Tua. We don't know yet. Um, not every quarterback 
shines in his first year and those who don't shine in their first year may shine down the road. Again, a lot of it is going to depend on who's around that quarterback. Is the quarterback getting good protection? Does the quarterback have good weapons? Is the coach best positioning the quarterback to be his best? But you're absolutely right. When a quarterback doesn't get off to a good start, unless you immediately can say, aha, it's because we're not giving him any time to throw the ball, or aha, it's because we don't have any receivers who can get separation, or aha, it's because we don't have a running game to complement the passing game. Unless you can point to something, it is a little bit scary, and you're wondering, did we make a mistake or not? And sometimes you don't know right away. And with Tua specifically, Amy, you look at that Miami roster, and they've got a lot of talent across their roster. Have they kind of, you know, you're saying, okay, you got to go through the checklist. Are we protecting him? Are we giving him targets to work with? It feels like Miami has kind of checked a lot of those boxes and that they will be able to get a very good idea of where Tua's at this year because of the strength of the rest of their roster. Well, and let's remember one other thing about last offseason versus this offseason. We had a pandemic shut down the NFL offseason last year. Players didn't get the reps they got. There were no preseason games. There were no OTAs. So, uh, you know, and and I I don't think there were mini camps and practices were different. So last offseason wasn't a good beta test, if you will, for how a quarterback might otherwise have developed. This will be a better test. It'll be very interesting in a lot of Bergs, including Jacksonville. We don't have time to get to Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars situation, how Marvin Jones, another Cal Berkeley graduate, might insulate him in that offense. But we will save that for next time, Amy. Hey, maybe we'll just have a whole Berkeley day on the show. Let's do it. Let's do I'm game if you are. There are so many great alum from Berkeley that we could easily do that. Thank you very much for your time. Once again, you can follow her on Twitter, at Amy Trask. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me. That is Amy Trask. Good follow on Twitter. Obviously part of the Big Three Basketball League as well. She's often tweeting about that in the NFL offseason, and she works for CBS Sports. I'm fascinated by these rookie quarterbacks this year, and I know we have an infatuation with it every single year, Jamie, because they get so overhyped. They really do. Like, remember the Winston Mariota 1-2 and who's going to be better? Like, That didn't really pan out to be what everybody hyped it up to be, despite the success that they had in college. And Winston's still fighting for a job. They both looked not great on the weekend. A lot of turnovers for the New Orleans Saints. I don't know what this class is going to amount to, but boy, are people high on it. Well, and it's fascinating because you're right. The pressure exists to get them on the field quickly. And then as I was alluding to there with Amy, if it's not a smash hit right away, I feel like the pressure to move on. Is, is also more intense, right? To move on quickly from a quarterback if it doesn't pan out right away. I mean, we've already seen, you know, Sam Darnold traded from the New York Jets. He was a very high draft pick, didn't have early success there in a very difficult situation. So it does feel like both the, the excitement to get them on the field and then the excitement to pull the plug if it doesn't work out right away, that, that's much faster, a much faster process than it used to be. Well, stability. You wanted at the quarterback position, but you need it around your organization as well. ESPN today officially announced the hiring of Alex Smith. We all knew he was going to be part of their analysis, but they officially anointed him that online today. Alex Smith had seven offensive coordinators in his first seven seasons in the league. You can't function that way. 
No, it's it's the exact opposite of setting a player up for success, right? It's doing everything you can in a way to make sure they don't reach their potential by by throwing that amount of volatility and uncertainty at them. I don't know if we agree on the potential of the team that we'll talk about a little bit next, but that potential better be realized in the next 15 games. Shai Davidi joins us on the other side on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.